We're at, we are at point C, grace plus works. Uh, and we're looking at we're looking at five, as you remember, five different approaches to grace plus and how to detect them. The first approach was, of course, works plus nothing. The other was works plus grace. This one is grace plus works. Now, this is the most common problem in the church. The next pro- the fourth one is the most common problem among unchurched people who claim to be Christian. This is the most common among people who claim to be Christians and attend church. Um, it's uh, the idea of, if you look at the subtitle after it at the bottom of your page, grace plus works, starting by grace, and I have growing in parentheses on purpose because it's in fact not growing at all. But we think of it as growing. We think of it as perfecting ourselves by our own strength or by our own initiatives. Uh, we, uh, for instance, um, the whole idea of self-help books. Self-help books is the is the number one um, um, genre of, of uh, pop psychology books that you can find out there, and it's a multi-billion-dollar industry. And even uh, in the TV Christian scene, um, the kind of have your best life now, uh, moralizing and and therapizing yourself and being your own best counselor or whatever, all of this cuts off the grace of God. And all of this is, uh, is grace plus works theology. You, where you start by grace, you understand that God redeemed you by grace, you you have a sense of grace at the when you pray the sinner's prayer and when you start your Christian life, and then you're perfecting yourself by your own efforts and your own works. Now, this is—I've uh, also titled this the Galatian Crisis because this is exactly what happened in the churches of Galatia and exactly what Paul is addressing in the Galatian epistle. And I just want to give us a couple introductory items about that Galatian epistle just to help us focus on how how uh, concerned Paul was about this problem. Paul was not just like, oh, this is another problem I need to address. This was probably, uh, this is the problem he spoke the strongest to of any problem he addresses in the New Testament. There is no other problem. And when you think about the Corinthian church, uh, there was a guy sleeping with his father's wife that would be his stepmom. I mean, and there was no, it was done publicly and openly. There was no repentance or remorse. There were people coming drunk to the Lord's Supper. <laughs> uh, there were they were they were having at, at church meals. The uh, the poor were being neglected, and the rich were, you know, eating before they got there. And uh, it, it there was all kinds of division, posturing. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. Kind of a so that there there's lots of other epistles in the New Testament that have significant problems. But none that Paul takes quite the approach that he does to this problem of grace plus growing, trying to grow by works. What he what he says, "Oh foolish Galatians!" Um, from the uh, ESV Study Bible intro notes, it says Paul is more critical of his audience here, that is in Galatians, than in any other letter. That's what when it says, "Think about it." That's what we just did. We just thought about that. Uh, there's another quote from the ESV Study Bible. There is no initial thanksgiving, how it, which indicates Paul's agitation and alarm over the theological situation in Galatia. Paul gets right to the point, which is that the Galatians are in danger of turning to a go- different gospel, thereby 
uh, risking the everlasting ruin of their souls. Now, in Galatians, we'll get into this a little bit as we go today, but there still is a salutation for five verses. But verses 3, 4, and 5 of the salutation, Paul begins to address this problem by briefly stating the gospel of of being saved by grace, progressing by grace, growing by grace, and being completed by grace. He makes a succinct succinct or short statement of that in verses 3, 4, and 5. So actually, verses 1 and 2, he just says to, you know, from Paul to the churches of Galatians, and he gets right into it. Now, every other epistle, he takes a while to commend them about the great things that God has done in their midst. First uh, Thessalonians stands out to me the most on that score. But even in Corinthians, Philippians, you know, he, because of what he says God has done in your midst by verse 6, he sums that up by saying, I'm confident that he who began a good work in you will complete it or perform it, perfect it, and make it whole until the day of Christ Jesus. He's confident because of the things he testifies to of the grace of God working in their life in the first few verses. He does none of that with, Gal- with the Galatians. With the Galatians, he just gets, gets right into saying, I'm alarmed that you're so quickly running to a different gospel. We'll, are, are astonished, and we'll read that in just a minute. Flip over and at the top of your second page. The main argument of the epistle is advanced by the use of autobiography, example, allegory, satiric rebuke, and exhortation. That's, again, from the ESV Study Bible. Now, uh, this is from Greg Weiss, not the ESV Study Bible, but if you think about biblical literature, historical literature, uh, didactic teaching where you just propositionally tell truth, which which is, happens a lot in the epistles, happens uh, quite often in the in the uh, prophets. Uh, then you talk about uh, word pictures, uh, Im- biblical imagery, symbolism, uh, parables, metaphors. Um, autobiography is something Paul uses three or four times. In, uh, in both Acts and the Epistles. Um, of course, he didn't write Acts, but Luke was his disciple and Peter's disciple. So, um, you know, frankly, every type of biblical literature that has been employed to try to open people's eyes to a point is used in this epistle, every single one of them, because the issue is that urgent in Paul's mind. So that's actually a, a, a much further point than the fact that he gets right into it. In other words, Paul is basically saying, this is so important, I'm going to try to explain this. It's a, a little bit like uh, Pastor Greg does and many other pastors probably, where you don't feel like you do, can deliver your soul well, and you go on and on and on because you're just you have a burden and you're trying to make sure that the lights are turned on to everyone. And uh, that's why we had to go to this format where I have to quit teaching at 10.15 to 10.17 because, you know, I have this tendency to think, well, I just want to make the lights go on better on this issue. Um, That's what Paul is doing in Galatians. He's saying, I'm going to employ every kind of literature, every logic, uh, Old Testament allegories, uh, understanding the connection between the Old Covenant and the New and the continuation of covenants. He he attacks this problem from every way he knows how. I, I hope that that's clear. So, uh, and he starts right in, but in verse 6, he says, I'm astonished. Now, what's interesting, if you could look 
I always check the, first the New American Standard, then the English Standard, um, the New King James, the Young, uh, the um, um, what's the the New Living Translation, the Amplified, Holman Christian Standard, uh, the Jewish uh, Complete Jewish Bible, uh, etc. Holman Christian Standard Bible. I check ten translations. I line them all up. I have five on one screen, five on another, and I compare them all. And so when he starts into this. Some of the translations say, I'm amazed, because it's, it's what some say, I marvel, I, I'm shocked, uh, I'm surprised. The reason there's differences in this verse is because it's a strong word, and people are, the, the translators, uh, what they do is they have committees, and they talk about how should we translate this word. And the committees are basically saying by this type of thing, this is a really important word, it's a really strong word. It's got a lot of action to it. It's, it's, uh, it's got a lot of richness to it. We want to make sure we make it. Um, I, there probably would be better modern ways of saying this, like, but I'm overwhelmed. I, it, 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 this is awesome to me. I, I, I can't get my mind around. I'm so amazed. I'm perplexed. What the heck's going on? It's important that we see the strength of that word as we go forward, that you're so quickly deserting him he didn't look at it as deserting theological prepositions, uh, such as justification by faith uh, alone or anything like that. He looked at it as deserting Christ. That's important. Who called you by the grace of Christ in your turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort some alternate translations there are pervert or twist. I like the word perversion because perversion is taking something that God made, like we talk, think about sexual perversion, something God made for great and holy and wonderful purposes and using it some other way. That's what perversion is. And uh, you're twisting, you're distorting, you're bending it out of shape, you're making it, you're kind of doing what you get in a hall of mirrors, you know, there's something there that looks about right, but it's all twisted and distorted, and certain parts are fat and skinny, and it, and you, you you know there's something there. It'd be like a hall of mirrors on acid or something. Is what he's saying. You know, it's really you're really messing this thing this thing up. The gospel of Christ. You're messing up the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you. Let him be accursed. That's the Greek word anathema, which means cut off from God, cut off from salvation, uh, under eternal damnation and destruction. It's the word that's in the Old Testament when things were put under the ban, which meant they were devoted to destruction. They were actually considered a type of offering to Yahweh. Remember the the um, uh, the sin at I. Uh, what was the guy's name at I? Uh, Achan. It's Achan. Thank you. Sin at I. He was everything was supposed to be devoted to destruction. It's that same word in the Septuagint uh, version, the Greek version of the Old Testament. Everything was supposed to be an offering to the Lord in the sense of we burnt a burnt offering. We destroy this uh, as unto the Lord because there's nothing redeemable in it. Any holding on to any of it 
will destroy us because of the sin. It's, it's, it's very similar to the, what the, one of the main problems in the church today is the lack of renunciation, the lack of a clean break from our perversions and our sins and our uh, illegal relationships and, and our wrong soul ties and our old friends and so forth. It's a, it's a lack of really understanding the gospel. And he's saying, if, if we add this performance, start with work, start with grace, but then start to perfect ourselves by works, we should be cut off. We should be devoted to destruction. We should perish eternally. We should be damned to hell. This is really what it's saying. It's not saying anything less than that. Um, and then he uh, repeats himself. As we've said before, I now say again, if anyone is preaching you to a, a gospel contrary, he sees it not as just a, a slight adjustment, but it's the opposite. It's contrary to the one you received. Let him be devoted to destruction. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? That's one of the things that any kind of works philosophy gets into is we seek the approval of men before we seek the, the grace of God. We seek to get, frankly, a lot of our insecurity needs met and so forth in relationships before they're met in God. Uh, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel which is preached to me is not man's gospel. Or another translation says, according to man. In other words, the gospel just doesn't think fit in with human thinking. In 1 Corinthians 2, he talks about how the natural mind can't understand the things of the Spirit. The gospel is contrary to, it's counter, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Counterintuitive to, uh, th thank you, to, um, to the way your natural mind would think. We think, oh, boy, I need, all the time when you share the gospel with people, they say, you know, I would, I would come to church and I, I would consider coming to God and stuff, but I, I really kind of need to clean up my act a little first. You can't. That is, the gospel is not according to man. Now, uh, this again, this problem of starting by grace and, and, and then uh, he, all through the epistle, he addresses it, and chapter three addresses it this way. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, by works of the law or by hearing with faith? When he's saying works of the law, he's not being antinomian. He's not saying the law is not important. He's saying the approach to the law that I can do it by my strength, by my effort, by my focusing, by my trying to be more religious. Uh He's talking about that approach. Did you receive the Spirit by that uh, self-approach, uh, which leaves room for human pride and self-righteousness and condemning your brother and, 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 and does not glorify God, it glorifies you? Did you receive the Spirit by that approach or by hearing with faith, whereby God just gave it to you by the grace of God and understanding the, 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 the message of Christ's first advent, that he came to bring the kingdom, to establish the law, that he lived a sinless life, that he died a substitutionary death, that he, that he rose to bring us new life, and he ascended to reign. Uh, that you just receive. 
You hear it, and when you hear it by faith, when God grants you the ability to hear it in your spirit and understand it and embrace it and so forth, it's totally the gift of God. That's what Ephesians 2 is saying. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's the gift of God, not of yourselves. So that's what Paul is asking them. Which way did you get started? Is what he's saying. So then when, once they've, it's, it's a self-rhetorical question. They're going to say, of, co- of course, they're going to say, yeah, we, well, we started by hearing by faith. We started by totally by grace. So then he says, after he asked them this rhetorical question and they answer in their hearts, we started by hearing by faith, by grace. Then he says, are you so foolish? Now, foolish is, is uh, in the tradition of Proverbs. It, it means just wrong thinking, wrong lifestyle, devo- not not with the fear of God, not in any reality, in a daydreaming sense. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh, in this case meaning self-effort? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of law or by hearing with faith? Do, you know, do we get healed? Do we have prophecies? Do we have uh, God's presence when we're worshiping and by ourselves or, or together? Do we have any of the things that God does, changing of hearts, regeneration, uh, heal, healing of cancers, uh, he, healing of, of all sorts of conditions, dem, demonic deliverances? Do, do, does any of that happen by, the, by our self-effort? Is there any way that uh, Pastor Greg or Edwin or someone else could bring that about by their own hoping so and wishing so and no. I you know if I tried to bring forth something that the Lord does by His Spirit, it, I could uh, try to produce a, some a grape and some fruit, and I, I couldn't even get a raisin to come out. <laughs> So he goes on in Galatians 5 to say it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Then this is really, this is really important to understand. He's not like saying, I'm just trying to use, uh, you know, Brother Greg uses hyperbole sometimes to make points. Jesus does it often. Paul's not doing that here. He's trying to be clear. He, sa- he, sa- he says, you have been severed from Christ. That's pretty radical. Remember John the Baptist, that the axe is laid to the root. You've, you're, you're not building on the right root. You're not grafted into the right tree at all. If having be, uh, where was I? It, you who are seeking to be justified by law. If there's still something in your heart, that's why the thing about pleasing men is so important, because if there's still something where you kind of like to, where you, you hear people say all the time, like, I don't like my sins to be known by everyone. Why? <laughs> Frankly, that's just human pride. I want you to know all my sins. They're, except, except for I want to be, you know, have propriety, and they're, they're disgusting. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and why would we, why pretend to be anything else? You know, I'm comforted by the fact that Paul claims to be the worst sinner and so forth, because sometimes I think I am. And I hope sometimes you really think that way about yourself. The truth of the matter is this sin problem we have is, it's just total. It's, it's, there, there can be no posturing that I'm like spiritual and, and I've grown up in the Lord because of 
all the great efforts I've done or that's all nonsense. You have been severed from Christ. You are seeking to be justified by, by self-effort, by, by, uh, by your own law or, or, or God's law, but your effort to do it by yourself. Whether In antinomianism, people substitute God's law for their own, like, you know, women shouldn't wear makeup or pants or, you know, whatever. They have all kind of, you might have all kinds of rules that make you righteous. And we, we look at guys who struggle with this problem, and that problem is really they're really dirty, but guys who struggle with this problem, that's more acceptable. You know, like I struggle with gluttony and, and things like gossip and things. Those are considered kind of okay Christian sins, which is nonsense. They're wicked to the core as much as any sexual perversion or robbing banks or or uh, being a white-collar uh, cheat, which has become rampant in our political and, and Wall Street and business situations and uh it's all sin is sin it's yuck and that's exactly what's in our heart apart from the grace for we through the spirit by faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness one more verse galatians 5 9 and uh he says this a little leaven leavens the whole lump that's our third sub subtitle in other words you can't start by grace and believe in grace but have a little bit of room for self-promotion, self-justification, self-actualization, self-aggrandizement, all the stuff that all the self-help books, even the Christian ones, tell you to do, and that you can't have your best life now and be a Christian. You've been severed from Christ if you take that approach. This is the most rampant uh, problem of all these grace plus theologies by far among those who would call themselves Christian, uh, go to Christian bookstores. There are more books with this philosophy in it in the Christian bookstores than there are ones that really have grace by far, by four to one. I like to pause sometimes just as you think about it. This is what, you know, Michael Horton's phrase that we you hear over and over at Grace Christian Fellowship because I like the phrase. I really got to read some of his books. I actually did read one of his. It was they called it a short, but <laughs> I downloaded it on my Kindle and read it just so I could say I read a Michael Horton book. <laughs> it was a little one, um, but it's a great phrase. Moralistic therapeutic deism. And I have read a couple articles of him. Um, he particularly likes to take on the guy who wrote about the best life now he has lots of articles against that guy for some reason um because it's moralistic therapeutic deism that's why well hopefully we got this okay Ho- hopefully I-, I would encourage you one last point on this and we'll move on to the next point this is very important i you know i grew up in a performance based denomination most christian denominations are performance based I also grew up in a very performance-based home. My parents were good people, godly people, but they were very performance-based and uh, struggle with that to this day. Myself, this journey out of this grace plus theologies, grace plus works, grace plus uh, self-effort and so forth has been a journey my whole Christian life. I'm thankful for John is probably the most recent instrument of God who's helped me grow in this area and focus on it. But there's been all sorts of, you know, many of you know I had a a tremendous fall in 
It's uh, left, had to leave the ministry, all kinds of things 22 years ago. And that was so helpful to me to learn this. Frankly, we could have never, never had the ministry we have to the people we minister to had God not taken us further in this. This will help you minister to people with real problems. I grew up in a college ministry with a lot of very uh, aggressive, successful people, entrepreneurs, guys with masters and doctorates, uh, lawyers, uh, people moving forward. And we had, frankly, uh, in the early years, probably until the 90s, not a lot of not a lot of grace in our heart for people who were really, really, really messed up and really, really, really needed five, 10, 15, and 20 years of personal mentoring and discipling to get to, to get it worked out and get whole. But you know what? Jesus helped those kind of people all the time. And it although Jesus did not invest in terms of his 12 disciples that much in those kind of people, he it constantly says when he saw the multitudes that they were harassed and downcast like sheep without shepherds. He saw them like we, if you, if God opens your eyes to see what's really going on in people's hearts and spirits at Kroger, as they walk down the street, uh, in very, especially in various subsections of our uh, subcultures of our, of our, uh, of our society and so forth. If God would be gracious enough to help you see these things, uh, you would see it like Jesus sees it. People are like sheep without shepherds. They're downcast. They're harassed by the enemy, by demonic spirits, by hurts, by confusion on every level of their being. We live in one of the greatest times of confusion that the world has ever known. We have progressed scientifically and technologically, but there's a kind of darkness that's settled on mankind that is, it's a gross darkness. And when Jesus saw that in people, he, it says he turned to the 12 disciples and said, and he be, that was his answer. What God wants to, to raise up is an army of hundreds, thousands of people. I'm glad we have two people who work at the Crisis Pregnancy Center. Lisa volunteered there for years and, and, it's kind of, and then finally joined him. It's like, it's like, it's like he, she, she was uh, in the reserve, but then she signed up, and uh, she's now on, on a tour of duty, but um, because you know what, what what that kind of ministry is doing is is this, they're saying, hey, okay, you got you made some mistakes, you got some problems, we're we'll walk with you through the duration. That is so desperately needed. That is the answer to the homosexual problem. That's the answer to the culture of poverty. It's the answer to the fatherless problem. We're, we're in a society that's busting apart on every level. Most people you meet are what one, at one time would have been considered severe psychological problems. The vet, about 80% of the people you meet fit into categories that would have just been 40 or 50 years ago considered seer, severe psychological and emotional problems. And you know what? You have to have grace upon grace upon grace uh, upon grace. And when you think you've run out of grace, it's only because the Lord, when you get empty, that you have to go to the Lord for more. And I'm telling you that that's the journey I'm still on. 
I don't know if I do it as well as some people in our church. I hope to God I do, but uh, that's what we all need. So let's move on to the next one. Grace plus perversion, or grace turned into licentiousness. Now that is, um, this one is the most common one among people who say they're Christians, but they really aren't in any kind of church where there could be any accountability or discipleship or, or you know, where there can still be a law unto themselves. In many cases, they're completely unchurched or they, they seek churches that tend to be big and impersonal so that they uh, don't have to ever really deal deeply with the Lord. That, that, um, this is huge. Like the, <laughs> those stupid car commercials. It's going to be huge. This is huge. Um, grace requires nothing is the idea. C.S. Lewis starts addressing this in his books in the 1950s, uh, Problem of Pain, especially other books. But this has become a rampant thing through our culture. It's, it, you know, whether this one's bigger than the previous one, I don't know. But Paul also addresses this one in Galatians. And, uh, and it is um, the idea that, it, that because you got grace for free, when you receive grace, you can just stay there. Well, God put grace on me. I, you know, I, I once was lost, but now I'm found. You know, the whole uh, John Newton thing that he was a slave trader and so forth. But it's the idea that he came and he was so ashamed of his slave trading and he was so humiliated and he understood how wicked and horrible it is and he receives grace and he receives forgiveness and then he goes out and continues to be a slave trader which he did, John Newton didn't do. But that's exactly, that's why we, we, our churches are full of guys that are doing drugs on the worship team, having sex on the worship team. I sat here in this very church with a, a guy who was visiting while he explained to a young guy in our church, I corrected it later, about how God had really worked in his life. And so, now, um, you know, that and that, you know, once he started cleaning up his life, that didn't gel with his wife very much. So they got a divorce. And so now he's living with this girl and they're sexual and everything. But it's okay because God's cleaned up his life and, and they're very much more sincere now. And, uh, and they're even thinking about that someday they might get married. And, and he goes to church. <laughs> you know? And uh, this is just a re actually a recent occurrence about a month or two ago. That's rampant out there. Galatians 5, 13 and 14, he says this, For you are called to live in freedom. Go back to Galatians 5, 1. It's for freedom that Christ sets you free. Don't be subject to get, get into a yoke of slavery. You are called to live there, dwell in it, bask in it, in freedom. Liberty is another translation. Brethren, only don't turn your freedom into an opportunity to, for the flesh. There's there, a lot of people in our day and age, you put grace on them, you forgive them, so forth. They just go like, like a pig and go back and waller in the mud again. That's not what he's saying. Don't congratulate yourself like, I did pretty good in the Lord for a day or two, and then just start heading back to your old ways. Don't turn it into an opportunity through the flesh. And here's one of the ways that you can avoid that. Through love, serve one another. The greatest is love. Serving people will take you to the cross. In a lot of cases, in most cases, now some people serve out of a, you know, kind of a people-pleasing thing and so forth, but a lot of people, as, as God grows you, you'll find yourself serving in 
what's really cool is to serve in tasks that are beneath your dignity. You know, I, I really mean this. I have never gone to any church, including this one, where my first job in the church wasn't taking out the trash once a week. That's been my first job in every church I've ever attended in my life. And, uh, um, and, and you know, when we bought this building, my boys were too young to send them down after dark. Uh, they were, you know, like not, not old enough for that. So I came down here after dark once a week and gathered up all the waste baskets and rolled the wheelie out to the street. Don't ever stop doing stuff like that. It's great to delegate it if you can, but uh, and it's good training for kids and stuff like that. I used to tell my kids when they were little, I'll know you're starting to grow up when you don't have to be reminded that it's trash day ever and that you do a thorough job and da-da-da-da. But nevertheless, don't ever get to the point where you never clean a bathroom or you never um, sit up talking to somebody who's puking or <laughs> whatever. And, uh, you know, uh, don't turn your the freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. Get involved with loving people that are not that easy to love. Some of us do that very well in this church, by the way. Hopefully you all missed it. I just smiled at someone who does that very well. Um, Jude brings this up, Jude 1, 3, and 4. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common faith, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing to you that you contend earnestly for the faith. This is one of the most important verses in the whole New Testament because the faith was once and for all handed down to the saints by the apostles. And this is toward the close of the canon on purpose. It's, you know, just before Revelation. Uh, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who long beforehand marked, were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. Now, and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that phrase, deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ, has to do with what Peter did uh, in, in, at, at the Garden of Gethsemane, and how he later that night denied Christ three times it has to do with Judas's betrayal of Christ. But New Testament Christians understood, if I'm not lead, leading a life that accurately reflects, reflects my discipleship of Christ, then my life is screaming a denial of him. And I don't care what your verbalized religious garbage is saying. I don't care what your profession or confession is saying. If your lifestyle's not backing it up, you are denying the on, your only master and savior who bought you. That's what Jude is getting at here. And you've been severed from Christ. That's why, really, th these two problems are so deep that the number one challenge we have in Grace Christian Fellowship is converting the Christians to Christ. It really is. Now, it has to do with more than just this. It has to do with the personalized individualistic gospel that doesn't see the need for community and discipling. There's all sorts. You know, we, we've become hedonists. We've become narcissists, self-serving, self-worshipping, a law unto ourselves, the, and, and we have been able to do this while masquerading it as Christian in all kinds of megachurch, different uh, types of churches. But this, this, is, this is a denial of everything that, that Christ is about. You cannot, now, I am, I am this, this is a very important issue to get. This is very, very important. 
a lot of it gets down to at the start of, of your walk where your heart is. There's, a, there's a, 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 a very unfortunate controversy in theology that shouldn't exist called the Lordship Controversy. Does, does someone, can someone just make Jesus Savior and gradually grow into the desire to make him Lord? That is what we're talking. That is heresy. It's very common in evangelical circles. It's it's just satanic. It's the doctrine of according to man. It's the flesh's doctrine. But when you are converted to Christ, you will receive. A, you're, when you're regenerated, you receive a new heart and a new. You created me a clean heart. Restore a steadfast spirit. Psalm fifty-one. And you, uh, as Paul talks about in other places. You became obedient from your heart to that form of teaching in which you were committed. Now, that does not mean that your lifestyle will totally, in every way, uh, reflect that right away. God takes you on a sanctification journey, and part of his goal is to teach you how to receive grace and faith and trust and walk with him and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him. One of the ways he does that is some areas of our lives we get supernatural delivery like right away. I used to do drugs. I didn't don't do drugs. You know, I was I was just getting started with the Lord when the Lord delivered me from drugs, and that's been 38 years. I wish I could tell you that He delivered me from other fleshly problems and habits. Uh, but he what happens is you have this desire to know Christ, to please Christ, to walk with Christ. That will even take you far enough to walk in the light with your brothers and sisters and so forth. But there are areas where you will struggle for a long time, especially there's different reasons, demonic spirits sometimes. Sometimes it's just broken down walls. Like you, this became such a deep lust in your heart or a deep uh, anger management problem or a deep root of bitterness or whatever, that sometimes it takes a while to walk out. But generally speaking, uh, you will want to be clean and want to be free, and you will get to a point that you're willing to do whatever it takes, uh, confess your sins, call for grace, fast more, work, uh, be accountable, whatever, but, you'll, but you, uh, it may take a while. I, you know, there are areas where God delivered me from in the first year I was a Christian, and there are areas that uh, started really getting better after I'd been a Christian 17 to 27 years. And that's that. But from your heart, you at conversion, you want to be like Christ. You don't want to be like Mike anymore. Uh, you want to be like Christ. And uh, I wish I could say that uh, you always get set free, but your freedom will come in really thinking through these kinds of grace plus theologies and getting to grace plus grace, which I got a few minutes to talk about. So let's get into the last one, which is the correct one, grace plus grace. We talked about that in John 1.17 in the first message, so I'm not John 1.16 and 17, that grace upon grace. Grace, uh, and, and Paul states it, at the beginning of his epistle, like I said at the beginning of this message, he says in Galatians 1 through 5, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, not just a doctrine, it's a relationship, who, not the ideas, but the person gave himself for our sins that he might rescue us, not through self-help. Rescue, a rescue is when you're you're standing on the roof and the floodwaters are coming and there's no hope for you except someone else grabs you. 
who rescued us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. That's a big, de- that's a big, we're, we're going to talk a little bit about how to detect grace plus theologies. The first and foremost way is, is who is, who do you deeply in your heart want to see get the glory, the credit, the data boy. Second Peter, uh, he talks about receiving a faith by the righteousness of God, our Savior. Grace and peace are multiplied through knowing God. It's granted. It, he's granted everything that pertains to life and God, godliness. It's for his glory and his excellence. Then he says, and apply all diligence. Now, the, the issue about grace plus grace is this. When you have Christmas at your house, you give your kids hopefully wonderful gifts, and they're free. But the kid has to show up to the gift-giving thing, and he has to unwrap them. And sometimes some assembly is required. But, <laughs> but uh, so the, the mystery of grace is that it's actually grace that motivates us to unwrap the presents. It, grace is something that you seek after more, but it's the grace of God that helps you seek after it more. But you seek after it with spiritual disciplines, both the corporate disciplines of confessing sins, worship, uh, being discipled, taking communion, and the personal disciplines of scripture study and, and prayer and meditation and fasting. All, but, but it's the grace of God that motivates you to, to want to do that because you want more of Christ. That's the mystery of it all. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling in Philippians 2 because it's God that's at work within you. Because God's given you grace and he's given you everything pertaining to life and godliness, go get it. Go get it violently. Violent men enter the kingdom of God by force. Rip out everything that would hold you back from him. Now, lastly, I, I'm over time, so I'm going to be as quick as I can. Point six is how to detect grace plus theologies first in ourselves. I'm telling you, I've struggled with this all my life. And God has gr- granted me progress consistently, uh, amazingly, by the grace of God over time. If you have the uh, grace plus theology, the wrong kind, grace plus works, or so forth, you'll experience condemnation and self-righteousness in the same person. You'll have thoughts criticizing others and thinking of yourself as better than someone and they're wrong, and you'll in self-congratulatory thoughts, and you'll feel really condemned all the time. <laughs> because, and, and there's some scripture verses there that I don't have time to read them all, but Romans 8, 1 is the classic, there's no condemnation. Secondly, you'll, be, you'll find yourself harsh in judgment. Now, that doesn't mean you become a mamby-pamby, wishy-washy, and you don't draw lines, and you don't call things what they are. It's not a lack of truth. But it's a graciousness about truth because you see your own depth of depravity. You you focus more on taking logs out of your life as a lifelong journey. That's not a one-time proposition, so that you can see more clearly the specks in those who you minister to. It's it's a good tree verse in root versus a bad one issue, and Jesus puts that uh, log thing in the context of a disciple becoming like his teacher. If you want to be the graciousness of Jesus Christ mixed with the truth, he was always bringing truth. That's why religious people couldn't stand him. Some people just hated Jesus before they ever knew him. I mean, seriously. And uh, but on the other hand, he turns to the woman caught in adultery. 
Neither do I. He sees through the whole hypocrisy of the whole situation. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. And the implication is she, he was so much grace and truth mixed together that she went and sinned no more. Over and over and over again, he does that. And the implication is the person takes up their palate and goes home and they change their life. Uh, your expectations. I always say this. This goes way back to a guy named Paul Petrie in the 1970s. Increase your appreciations and decrease your expectations. We have to always do that of ourselves and everyone. And, and you'll never stop having to hear that. <laughs> Lastly, you'll be a people pleaser. I was actually watching, I, I don't know, I was going to try to say some of the names, but I can't, can't remember what they are. But, you know, there's all these country music awards and Oscars and, and different things, and I was trying. There was one on the last week that had to do with music, Grammys, or something. And I, I don't know one from another. But what I, what amazes me so much is that uh, winning the majority vote that, that that your peers think you're the the best is like so important to everyone. That is a bondage that's deep and and sad. You should cry over that. To be so concerned with how others think of your, you know, art or music or whatever. You know what? In knowing Christ, you have to have a firm root in yourself, know who you are, and know what he's called you to be. And if you get any affirmations at all, they should only be from people who are basically a little further along than you, but they're much, they're very secondary to, uh, to everyone else.